Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Kila Rose Calloway says the things you're thinking, but generally have good enough sense not to say aloud. She also likes to make people laugh, which is a good thing when you're a comedian. This educator turned comedian first came on the Black Expat Radar in 2018 when she shared her journey while living in Poland. She now lives in Vietnam where she relocated in order to start her own comedy organization. Yup, a comedy organization. This California-raised black woman moved to a small city in Vietnam to start a comedy organization. Pretty sure you haven't heard that one before. And while that by itself could fill up a day's worth of conversation, we cover a lot of ground in this episode. So stop by for the commentary, but stay for the laughs. So, Keila Rose, last time the Black expat checked in with you, you were living in Poland, and I know that there, there were a number of people who probably don't even know that story. So could you tell for the folks who are listening in, um, what took you to Poland and basically why were you there? Well, uh, to explain why I was in Poland, I kind of have to explain why I was in China, because that's where I was there before. And then it's like, well, then how did I get to China? Well, that's because I was in Albania. And how did I get to Albania? And it's just <laughs> going back and back and back. But like to spare people the boredom of my whole life story, basically, I had just been teaching for international schools for 10 years. And I kept trying to find, you know, the perfect job. So if one school or one country didn't work out for whatever reason, I would just try to find a better position in a better country. So when China was clearly not working out, I applied for jobs elsewhere and I got uh, an offer in Poland. So uh, I was able to follow up on that and wound up teaching at that school for two years. And so what part of Poland were you in? I was in the western part of Poland, quite close to Germany, 
the city on the map looks like Roclaw, but it's actually pronounced Bratswav. So it was a really cool town. When I moved there in 2015, it was officially the European capital of culture. So there was always something going on. They have this amazing film festival pre-corona every summer um, and another one every fall. Just the kind of city where there's always something to do, always different people to hang out with, really vibrant, really cool. And so what I'm really interested in is we don't, at least I haven't come across that many Black expats who are necessarily living in Poland, and you also mentioned Albania. So what was your experiences living in Poland as a Black woman? Well, to be honest, they started off neutral and then got increasingly negative. Um, I don't know, um, you know how much people know about the political situation in Europe in general, so I don't want to bore people with long explanations. But again, like just to cut it short, all of Europe is going through a phase of just getting more and more right wing. And Poland is definitely at the forefront of that. So they are currently controlled and and were controlled when I was living there by something called like the Peace and Justice Party. Mm -hmm. And it's a very anti-immigration, pro-Poland party. Um, So when I first moved there, they were starting to become more and more active with different demonstrations and um, uh, you know, anti-immigrant protests because of the Syria crisis. Mm-hmm. And it just got worse and worse um, to the point where I was getting accosted on the street uh, on a regular basis uh, mm-hmm. while I was living there. So it just really made me uncomfortable. And it really became clear that as much as I loved Bratislav, it wasn't the type of place that I was going to be able to settle down permanently because I don't want to live in a place that makes me feel so unwelcome. And so were you seeing, I mean, you know, you mentioning even being accosted, but were you seeing various types of immigrants or expats being accosted? So just anyone who wasn't Polish or did you see it was targeted towards immigrants and expats of color? Like what was your experience? I mean, I didn't see with my own eyes anyone else getting accosted or treated the way that I was, but I was trying to exchange stories with people online and I would notice a similar pattern Mm -hmm. where someone would post in the expats Facebook group that such and such had happened to them and they had gone through this experience. And then you'd have tons of people jumping on to comment that they must be lying, that it didn't happen, Mm. that this isn't the truth. And when you see this many people working to gaslight others into, uh, you know, denying the reality of their experiences, it's not a surprise that you start to see fewer and fewer people post and share their experiences. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, it's impossible to say with any certainty how many people this was happening to because so many of us felt like there was no one we could even talk to about what was going on. So I don't know, unfortunately, um, how many other people experienced it, but I know I'm not the only one. Mm. That's, that's pretty powerful. Ooh, we have an echo. Okay. <laughs> that's pretty powerful. I, you know, I think that gaslighting is something that I, is being talked about a lot because we are going through a lot of, of civil unrest, if you will, and we'll get to, the, to that in a moment. But just the fact that it's so difficult for people to affirm 
someone else's experience. Like it doesn't have to be your own experience, but the difficulties in really just saying, Hey, I see you. I'm sorry this happened. You know what? Let me try and, 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 and learn more and see how I could be supportive and be aware. It, it just, that's something that I think is really frustrating, right? That, that other people are so quick to say, well, this is no, this is not happening. You know, I just, I find it really defies any logic because I can understand that if you have never had that experience, it might be shocking or surprising to you to learn that someone else has had that experience. But I can never in my wildest dreams imagine looking at a person and, or even seeing what they write on, on a social media platform mm-hmm. and just saying to them, you're lying, this didn't happen. Mm. And it, it, it happens so often that, you know, people share what they go through and, and they have all these total strangers who weren't there and who don't know completely try to invalidate and erase their experience. And it's like, what do these people really think? Do they really think that all of us are lying? Mm-hmm. Do they really believe that this many people would come forward with stories that we're all just like sitting together in some Facebook group deciding when we're going to make up stories and when we're going to drop them online? <laughs> like, it, it, it's so convoluted and it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like you, you have to follow Occam's razor. Whatever is the, the simplest explanation must be the true one. Right. And we're, we're all telling the same story, different versions of the same story. The simplest explanation is that we're all telling the truth. So <laughs> right. instead of denying us that, why don't you just listen to what we say and, and actually just hear us? And, and even if you don't want to take the step of trying to improve the situation, the least you can do is stop calling us liars. So were you... Were you witnessing some of the challenges coming from, you obviously said it was on an expat social media platform. Were you seeing some of the challenges coming from uh, citizens of the country, like citizens and residents, or were you seeing it coming just from other expats? Um, the people that I saw who were struggling um, and having these negative encounters that like, like of the same nature that I was having were all expats or immigrants. So it doesn't, mm. Um, it, it doesn't mean that there aren't native Polish people who also struggle. Like I had a good friend at the time I was living there who was half Polish, half Mauritius. And he had, you know, Polish family who would never even speak to him um, hmm. because they didn't want anything to do with, um, the, you know, this mixed race relative. So it, it definitely affects Polish citizens too. And I mean, this guy was a Polish citizen. He is a Polish citizen. He speaks fluent Polish. Um, he has the passport. You know, he's been living there almost all of his life. And uh, mm. and still, there are people in that country who consider him an outsider. So mm. this is the type of um, attitude that you get. And again, it's, you know, it's not just Poland, but mm-hmm. it, it definitely cut short what had been up until that point, a very enjoyable experience. I really loved living there. And I was getting so much out of it creatively and professionally, but you know, safety first. <laughs> Always. And you know, it, you're not the first person I, I think I've chatted with who has been based in Europe at some point who has talked about the shift, right? And I'm talking about folks who've lived in Europe for, for a significant amount of time and it depends on where they live. I don't want to do a blanket statement for all of the continent, but definitely talking about that shift. And I, and I think it aligns very much in what you said, obviously with the Syrian conflict and you know, with more migrants, immigrants coming through North Africa, 
right? Um, And just really dealing with the fact that they've got a massive humanitarian crisis. and, And I hate to say it, but often when a crisis comes, you tend to see sort of the ugliness of nature as well, of people's nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, mean, I mean, sometimes you see the beautiful stuff, but sometimes you also see rhetoric that you're going, oh my God, like <laughs> I would have never yeah. even thought. And so this aside though, because I'm curious about something you just said. You said up until this point though, obviously you were having a relatively good time or a relatively wonderful time in Poland. So tell me, tell me a little bit about, about living in Poland and, and, and what you found to be enjoyable, you know, obviously prior to all of this stuff happening. Yeah, well, uh, like I said, it was the European capital of culture, so there are always a lot of cultural events going on, but more so than cultural events, there were people who were interested in different cultures. So when you when you meet people, it's not like they're, you know, looking at you as just, oh, you just moved here, great, well, you know, welcome, blah, blah, blah they really are interested in you Mm. and they want to learn more about you. They want to have serious conversations with you. Like I'll never forget one of the first social events I went to when I moved into the city was a French club meeting. It was like a French language group. Um, My French is rusty as hell. So (laughs) um, don't make me prove it in this podcast, please. But (laughs) I actually do speak French pretty well and I wanted to meet people. So I went to this meeting and I met so many different people. Many of them were not even French. And we were speaking a lot of different languages at the meeting. So, you know, that type of cultural integration just really excited me, you know, and it made me think, oh my God, I really live in a fantastic city and um, I have all these different people that I can interact with and uh, reach out to and people who share my interests and people who are so different from me that, um, you know, I can learn from them. And, you know, it was, it was exciting. It was really mm-hmm cool. Like I've, I'm not that social of a person, but when I was in Wrocław, I actually became more social. I went out uh, on a regular basis and, and um, interacted with people and it was really cool at first. <laughs> and so by the time you got to Poland, you'd already lived internationally in Albania and China, correct? And South Korea and Germany. <laughs> South Korea. So how, so how many years of your, I guess, how many years into your international experience was Poland? Um, Poland was almost going on a decade. Um, let me think. I moved to Germany in 2009 and I moved to Poland in 2015. So quick math, quick math. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, I can't do the math in my head. No. <laughs> um, so yeah, in terms of my teaching career, it was like, the sixth year. And so for, for those who may not know, you obviously alluded earlier on, you were in international education, you are an educator. What was the initial catalyst that took you to your first job abroad? Like what took you from leaving the United States and really took you to even going international? Well, the specific catalyst was the economic crisis of 2009. (laughs) Um, But more broadly, um, I've been wanting to live overseas pretty much my whole life. I was just one of those people, um, you know, I had wanderlust or a travel bug or whatever you want to call it. 
Um, so even from the point when I was a little girl, I wanted to escape my my small California city and live somewhere else. Um, and it drove me crazy that no one around me had the same ambitions. Like uh, I grew up around people who would always say like, why do we ever need to leave California? We've got the mountains, we've got the ocean, we've got everything we need, we've got beautiful weather. There's no need to ever set foot outside of California. Mm. And I'm just like, you know, slamming my body up against my cage trying to get free while the rest of them just love it in here so, so there's uh, a me- there's a metaphor you don't hear every day um, but i love it but i love it it works it totally works and yeah, so man, i just i couldn't identify with them because i never once saw the city as a place to settle down permanently and never once even as a child mm-hmm. crossed my mind that this is it this is where i'm going to live And I mean, I'm not trying to necessarily say that it's wrong for people who do have that feeling. If you grow up in a place and you love it and you feel like this is my home, this is where my life is going to be, I mean, more power to you. That's fantastic. But I just never, ever felt that way. And I always knew I was going to leave. It was just a matter of time. And I tried to go as far as possible. Like I went from California to New York for university. That's literally the other side of the country. (laughs) And it was only because of my mom putting her foot down that I didn't go further. I wanted to go to undergrad in Switzerland. There was this college called Franklin Swiss that was sending me mail and I just devoured it. I mean, I I would have freaking loved to go to undergrad in Switzerland. But my mom was like, forget it. (laughs) So New York was the farthest I could go. And it is very different from California, to be fair. Same oh, country. Yeah. <laughs> but completely different from Southern California. Yeah, it doesn't really seem like the same country. You know, East Coast versus West Coast, I guess, thanks to globalization, everything's starting to seem the same all around the world. But right. definitely in the year 2000, when I went to college for the first time, it was a totally different world. And I could not have been more thrilled <laughs> to be part of it. And so what was the what was the first country you went to or that you moved to for work? So when I actually did make the move overseas, it was because, um, like I said, the economy crashed and I had to kind of pivot. I was uh-huh. originally in law school studying to be a maritime lawyer. Wow. Um, and I wanted to work overseas once I got my law degree, which is why I moved to Germany. I was actually doing um, an internship at the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. But um, when I came back from that, all of a sudden the world had gone to hell, the economy had collapsed, and I had to find something else to do because even though I had the same credit score that I'd had before the economy collapsed, suddenly I couldn't get approved for a student loan unless I got a cosigner. Hmm. Um, like I had a scholarship for law school, but I needed loans to pay for all my non-tuition stuff, like apartment and, uh-huh. and um, everything else. So I wasn't willing to let anyone else co-sign for me. So I figured, okay, this is just temporary. You know, I'll do something else for a while and then I'll come back. And a friend of mine had been teaching in South Korea and mentioned that it was a great way to save up money because they pay for your house. They pay for your flight in and out. Um, you don't really have that many expenses and the salary is really good. It's fun. It's a great country and so on and so forth. So I took her at her word and applied for some jobs and wound up uh, moving there um, in 2010. So wait a minute. How far along were you in, in law school? 
at that point? I only finished one year. Okay. So after, so after that one year, obviously with the story you just told, you basically took an opportunity in South Korea. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I had no choice because otherwise I would have had to get someone to co-sign loans for me if I uh -huh. was going to keep going with law school. And I wasn't willing to do that. I already had debt coming out my ass because of Cornell. And um, I really didn't want to saddle anyone else uh, with the burden of my debt. So I figured I'll go to Korea for a year or two, <laughs> save money. And then when I come back, the economy will be better. I'll be able to get a loan on my own. Plus I'll have money saved up from Korea and I'll finish school. You know, best, <laughs> that was the plan at the time. <laughs> and, and then tell everyone where you are right now. <laughs> now I'm in Vietnam. <laughs> I've been in law school since. <laughs> so plans definitely changed. <laughs> and so do, did you ever, and we're going to talk a little bit about the stuff you're doing right now, but did, have you ever considered going back to law school or has that, <laughs> has that dream sailed on? Um, it's funny you should ask that because you, especially with Corona and everything happening, sometimes I wonder like, man, you know, what would my life be like right now if I had been a lawyer, you know, would I still be <laughs> you know, dealing with the struggles that I'm dealing with? So I don't know, honestly, I think in terms of the sheer practicality of it, if I do go back to law school, they would not let me have my first year of credit. I would have to start over. I think um, the maximum they were going to let me do that was um, three years or five years or something like that after I left the first time. So I don't know. Part of me is like, man, I really would like to finish what I started. And, you know, I hate, I hate having this <laughs> thing. But part of me is just like, God damn it. I'm not, I'm not doing courts again. I'm not doing crim 101 again. Like, <laughs> It was so hard. I don't want to sit through the same classes again. Like, if I could get a law school that would let me pick up where I left off, I would so try to finish it. But I don't want to do a repeat. <laughs> that's I, I sound super whiny right now, but it was so hard. No, that's, <laughs> no, that's super fair. I mean, once you kind of jump over a hurdle, who wants to do it again, right? Like you did it yeah, the first time. Yeah. So obviously... We've talked about Poland, but now you're in Vietnam. When did you get to Vietnam and what has brought you currently to your present city? Well, that also requires a little bit of backtracking. <laughs> um, once I was in Poland, um, like I said, I went there as a teacher, but then something strange happened. Um, I was hanging out with some friends. Like I said, I was going out all the time uh, when I lived there instead of being the little couch potato that I usually was. And we wound up going to a comedy show. And at the comedy show, the guy who was hosting the show mentioned that they were going to have an open mic in a few weeks and that everyone in the audience was invited if they wanted to go to the open mic and perform. Um, so I was thinking in the back of my mind, like, oh, that sounds pretty cool because it was kind of like a bucket list thing that I wanted to try stand-up comedy just to try it, you know, mm -hmm. um, because I had done improv comedy when I was in high school and college. And I always thought, uh, that I wouldn't really be good at stand-up comedy because I'm one, I have a really weird sense of humor and it's like all through my life. If I think something's funny, no one else really thinks it's funny. <laughs> 
But if I say something that I didn't think was funny, a lot of people laugh and I'm like, well, I don't know what was funny about that, but whatever. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was just one of those weird things where I was like, well, I want to try this. I know I'm probably not going to be good at it, but I just want to just do it to say that I've done it. So I ended up going to the open mic and I actually wound up doing a really good job. Mm. And I did so well that the same guy, um, his name's Jim Williams, who had announced the open mic, uh, contacted me after my performance at that open mic and said he wanted me to perform at one of his um, real shows. So he actually invited me and two other open micers, who I guess had been the best that evening, to open for him and his friends who were like, you know, slightly more professional experienced comedians. And I did the same five minute bit that I had done at the open mic. And I figured that was it because I didn't, I didn't have any more jokes up my sleeve. You know, this was like a one-time thing. And I was thinking, well, you know, that was fun. That was cool. At least I can say I did it and I, and I did it well. So that's like, you know, a little, a little star I can give myself for the future. And I figured that was the end of it because I didn't think I'd ever come up with any more material. But then somehow I did. And I went to another open mic and I performed again. And it just kept going and going and going. So I wound up really getting into stand-up comedy. And when I decided to leave Poland, my goal was not just to find another teaching job, but to find another city where I could perform stand-up and where I could really pursue that as a serious uh, possible career. So I picked Southeast Asia because it has a really good comedy scene. And I had been performing all over Europe, but it wasn't netting me the results that I wanted. So I figured, you know, let me try something else. Let me go to Asia. And it was a choice between several different Asian countries. And I picked Vietnam because their comedy scene is amazing. They've got some really good people here uh, in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City who are already uh, running fantastic comedy scenes. But even more to the point, the city where I live had no comedy scene whatsoever. And I was like, well, this is a fantastic opportunity, not just to perform stand-up, but to really be a pioneer and start my own comedy scene. Because I quickly learned when I was performing in Europe that the people with the real power are the people running the shows. And rather than have to, you know, kind of go around to people being like, I'm super funny, put me in your show, which I loathe doing. Um, I could be the one running my shows. And that means I would always get stage time. And it means that people would then be coming to me looking mm -hmm. for a, a chance to perform. So I started an organization called Comedy Central Vietnam um, and was running shows here in Central Vietnam from uh, March of 2019 up until the corona hit and shut us down. Wow. So that's something we definitely don't hear every day. <laughs> Black Women Starts Comedy Organization in Southeast Asia. Um, tell me, what like what type or, or, or brand of comedy do you typically do? Is there a particular style or what's your, what's your I guess, your shtick? Well, um, I guess I would say that my comedy is kind of towing the line between drawing from my personal experiences and making societal commentary it's like i take my personal experiences and then kind of extrapolate them 
to make a larger point about society. And it sounds super pretentious when I put it like that. <laughs> so I kind of hate that I put it like that. But yeah, I guess that's kind of a fair way to to summarize it. So I guess it begs the question, I mean, you have a particular perspective, obviously, just from your own life and, and you know, how you've grown up and, and you as a Black woman. How does your... I guess, how does your comedy translate in all these different environments, right? I obviously presume you're doing comedy in English, of course, but... Yeah, it's who, always English. I was going to say, who's who's receiving it? Is it is it both locals or is it expats? Or how, how does your... How do you feel your comedy really connects with those who may have a completely different perspective on so many levels than maybe what you're presenting? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, basically to answer your fir the first part of your question, the comedy is definitely being viewed by a mixture of expats and locals, although it's mostly expats. In Poland, there was a better ratio of expats to locals because it's Europe and they learn English at a very young age there. So there were far more people who understood English well enough to be able to understand comedy, which is, as you know, a very different level of English than just the basics. Mm -hmm. You basically have to be fluent and you not only have to be fluent, you have to be able to make certain cultural references. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're doing comedy for an international audience like that, you just kind of train yourself not to make your references too specific or when you do make your references specific because it's necessary for the joke, you have to be able to frame it in such a way that everybody understands it. Mm -hmm. So I can't just start off introducing a concept and assume that everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about. I have to set it up so that the people who've never heard of it can follow along um, and understand the punchline. If that makes any sense. No, that makes complete sense. Because so I just changes my writing. And that's what I, I was curious. I, I mean, obviously you're American, right? So <laughs> so I I wonder how much of that kind of filters through the comedy that you're writing. Um, well, it's very prevalent. I mean, I I'm I am who I am. I'm an African American woman. And I've had a lot of international experience, but ultimately my comedy is personal. I'm not one of these people who tells a bunch of generic jokes that would work just as well coming from anybody's mouth. And again, no shade to people who operate like that because it's a perfectly valid way of doing comedy. And God knows I've laughed my ass off <laughs> at plenty of comedians who, um, who had just one one-liner after another and it was hysterical. Mm -hmm. um, but my jokes would not work as well if somebody else told them. Mm. And because of that, my jokes are pretty much, you know, um, inseparable from who I am. Mm. So they do have an American perspective, but it's up to me as a comedian to make sure that when I tell the joke, that I'm telling it in such a way that people can understand my perspective and um, not make them feel alienated. And most of the time I would say that I succeed. I mean, without any particular ego, I can say that I usually get good crowd reactions. I mean, I'm human, I bomb like anyone else. <laughs> I, certainly, I certainly had my fair share of shows where I'm just like, yikes, that did not go over well. 
Um, but you just take those experiences and you learn from them and you learn how to rephrase the joke and how to approach the subject in a different way so that people can connect to it. Sometimes it's sometimes it's just a bad joke. Sometimes mm -hmm. it wouldn't work no matter who you were telling it to. <laughs> but other times, you know, you can just kind of uh, do it a different way and it will work. And so I am completely, honestly fascinated by the fact that you are doing comedy with all these different audiences. I'm I'm curious now, given the times that we're we're living in, what is some of the is inspiration you're really seeing for your comedy? Well, it's drawn from my life. So when I first started, most of my jokes were about teaching. Um, so I would tell tons of jokes about what it was like being a teacher and dealing with students, but they weren't this the, the usual perspective like, oh, you know, these kids are so bad. How bad are they? Blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, what, it, it was just twisted because like, I'm just a twisted person. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would, I would also joke about my love life. But then the two things sort of come together. So I have this whole set that I do about how um, I solved my problems with my dating life because I realized that as a kindergarten teacher, it would be easiest for me to just date kindergartners. <laughs> like I know, I know how to get, how to win them over. I, I know exactly what they like. Um, every everything works out perfectly. I know what songs they like. So yeah, if I just date <laughs> kindergartners, everything's fine. <laughs> Problem solved. Done. And and scene. <laughs> and yeah, so, well, the joke is actually much much dirtier than that. I'm not going to it, but like, it's definitely like not the direction the audience was expecting me to go. So I, that's what I like to do. I like to surprise people. Um, you know, the, the joke is not usually going where you think it's going to go, and and that's kind of the essence of comedy. Have you ever run into any situations? Obviously, you mentioned, um, you know tanking right but have you ever run into any situations in anywhere you've been where maybe someone felt that that particular joke crossed the line or oh god yeah <laughs> that joke in particular is like a real um litmus test honestly because oh no like you really have to be in the right audience to tell that joke it doesn't work with all audiences as i've learned to my to my girl um i remember once in germany the whole room was cracking up, but there was one guy in the front row who was just glaring daggers at me. And I finally got to the point where I stopped the set and looked right at him. And I was like, you know, I'm not talking about your kid, right? Like your kid would be too ugly to date anyway. I'm talking about other people's kids. Oh, <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, didn't appreciate that either. But yeah, the point, the point is that not everyone is going to like your material. And you just have to accept that as a comedian. You're not going to get everybody. Uh, but you have to be able to read the room. Mm -hmm. So I never start with that joke. I always build up to it over the course of a longer set. And if audiences are not laughing at the jokes that came before it, then I'm not going to tell that joke. I'm going to go in a different direction and end with something else mm. because obviously they're not down for that. <laughs> and so I, you know, as obviously an American, I'm very fascinated with you in terms of we've got a lot of stuff going on in the country. <laughs> being the U.S. Obviously, you're in Vietnam, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, does, does the U.S. ever show up in your jokes? In, whether oh, it's constantly. <laughs> whether it's 
that? <laughs> Whether it's politics or culture or what, what, what are some of the things that you're definitely observing that's, that's part of your repertoire? I mean, I comment on a lot of things that um, I think, I, I feel like the audience is going to think these things anyway, so I might as well get ahead of them. Like, I'm, I, I'm bigger. Like, obviously, if you see my picture, you notice that I'm pretty much overweight. Like, I'm, I, I'm pretty much what people expect of an American to just be fat. <laughs> so I lean into that. Like, I mention it all the time when I'm on stage and I mention it very casually to be like, well, I'm aware of this and I get it. Mm. So it's like, I'm going to make that joke before you can make it in your mind, you know? So it's not a distraction. I'm very honest and open about like, this is me, this is who you're dealing with. Um, but I also take the things that are negative about the United States and use them to make darker comedic jokes. Um, and I open most of my sets uh, for audiences who've never seen me before, explaining my name, for example. And as you know, my name is Keela Rose, it's, and people are constantly making the mistake of calling me Keela. So I always introduce myself to audiences by letting them know this is a, a tradition from the Southern United States that we have everything doubled. So people double their names. It's not just Billy, it's Billy Bob. You know, it's not just Susie, it's Susie Lou. And that's why my name is Double. But it's not just names, it's also uh, the food. Like, you know, we eat double crust pizza, we eat double stuffed Oreos, we eat double uh, bacon cheese hamburgers with double the meat, double the cheese, and double the bacon. And then after eating all that shit, we need double bypass surgery. So... How do you think people really react to some of the things that you're saying, especially in what's going on in, in the U.S.? Like, what do you what do you think? <laughs> what are some of the reactions you're seeing to some of these jokes? I get a good mix of laughs that are mixed with a sound that sounds kind of like this. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> because people just like can't believe that I really said that. <laughs> Um, and it's like, we all thought this about the United States, but holy shit, she said it. Mm. And this is kind of what I mean about how growing up, I would say things that people didn't, that people would laugh at. And I was like, I don't know why everyone thinks that's so funny. Um, like I remember when my grandfather died, um, his daughter-in-law took his car and she was having a lot of trouble driving it. I guess she'd never driven a car like that before. And she was kind of going, like, um, swerving, you know, on the road and everything. So she was driving rather dangerously. And I'm sitting there, watch from another car, watching her swerve on a highway. And I'm like, if she doesn't know how to drive this car, why is she the one that got it? And the whole car started laughing. I'm like, I'm just asking. That's <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but that's always been me. I've always, and, and my uncle said, we're laughing because we're all thinking that, but you said it out loud. Um, and that's always been me. Like I've always been the one who speaks up while other people are silent, but everyone knows that what I'm saying is true. You are that person. <laughs> I always say you're that person who's just, I'm absolutely that person. I'm the one whose mom would have to say, we're going into this meeting and don't you say anything. Don't you embarrass me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and <It's> outside. <laughs> and you know, as an American who's living, first of all, in Vietnam, 
um, what has been sort of your your thoughts looking from the outside, I guess, but having having the insider knowledge of being American and obviously living in the country of some of the things we, we've seen happen over the course of the past year. Uh, so obviously, globally, we've all been dealing with the impact of COVID, corona, and every country's handled it differently. But then I think even, you know, more importantly, as someone who is Black, um, seeing sort of the civil unrest that just, I want to say continued. I don't even even know. I don't know if I want to say sprouted because I think if you're black and you, you're kind of dialed in for a very long time, but the, Mm -hmm. the, the, the unrest that sprouted to the point where it looked like it, it almost spiraled internationally. What is, what's been kind of your thoughts about everything that's been going on? Well, I mean, I'm feeling what I think is best described as survivor's guilt because watching all of this from afar has been utterly heartbreaking. And even though I left the United States and even though I'm the first one to criticize the United States and to speak up uh, when the United States does something that I consider to be unjust or wrong, I have never stopped being anything but an American. So to see my country bleed like this is utterly devastating, honestly. And I've been going through a rough time watching it from afar because part of me feels like I should be there. I shouldn't be able to sit here in Vietnam safe as I can be uh, while, while these guys are out there getting snatched off the streets and, uh, you know, getting attacked by the police who are supposed to be protecting them and putting their lives on the line just so that they will stop killing us. Like, I just, I feel like part of me should just give up what I'm doing, get a plane ticket, fly over there and get in the streets because they're fighting for me as much as they are for themselves. And, and I feel like I'm not contributing anything. So that's really frustrating. Uh, but at the same time, I know that it would be totally impractical for me to go over there. I mean, my life is here. My work is here. My home is here. Um, you know, if I go to the States, I don't really have anywhere to stay. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's difficult. And especially with the Corona crisis, because I live in Vietnam where they've handled the crisis very well. Um, they, they barely had um, any cases compared to other countries. They've handled it uh, superbly, quite frankly. So you know, they, not perfectly, God knows, but very, very well, especially compared to the shit show that is America right now. So um, I, I, I feel good about that on one hand, but then I feel guilty for feeling good about it because the rest of the country is out there suffering. You know, my mom can't even go to Starbucks and get a coffee and I'm able to go live my life pretty much as normal um, because they handled it so well here that life is pretty much back to normal. So there's a guilt that goes along with it that, I mean, I call it survivor's guilt because I, I feel like it might be similar, but I don't know if that's the best term for it. I think that you have articulated really well uh, a common sentiment that I've heard from other Black American expats in particular, that it can be really hard to be outside the country because this, this is where your roots are, right? It's where your family is. It's where people have grown up and lived and loved and all the stuff. And, and it's almost like watching a movie 
right? Because <laughs> except you have intimate knowledge about the back end of the movie, right? You know how the sausage is made, essentially. I would say it's kind of like watching a documentary, which makes yeah. it worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah, this this ain't no, you know, Avengers assemble kind of a thing. These are right. real people really Absolutely. dying. Yeah. So it's fucked up. And I, I think that the way you said it is such a common sentiment in terms of, you know, I feel kind of bad that I'm like where I am, I'm doing okay in terms of safety, but there's still a mental toll. And I, I, I always wonder if that's something we really do talk about that even, even if you are removed from the environment, right? Like once again, your roots are still there. So it doesn't mean you're not impacted just because you're not physically within the borders. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing I feel guilty about, honestly, is that underlying all of this, there's a tiny part of me that is like, I knew it! Because, honestly, like, this is why we leave. We left the United States because we didn't like it there. Because we knew there was a problem. Because we knew that we didn't want to raise children there, especially black men. I would never in my life raise a black male child in the United States. I mean, at this point, it looks like I'm going to have kids anyway, but that was the plan when I was younger. So part of me is like, I knew this was going to happen, but I don't take any joy from that. And I feel guilty for even thinking it because part of me is like, maybe we shouldn't be fighting. Maybe we should just let these crazy people have the country that they don't want us in. Maybe we should all leave, you know, but at the same time, why should we? That's our home too. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to really know what the best response is. And especially when you're dealing with people who don't seem to react to anything but violence and you know that violence is inevitable, mm-hmm. it, it becomes such a hard choice to make. And I feel that I should be making it too, but I made my choice and my choice was to leave. So that kind of puts me in a position where I can't really say too much or, or judge too much or, or, or be in the same arena. I don't know if I'm making any sense anymore, but I got you. I got you. I don't know. It's like, I just, I feel like there's only so much I can say or do because I'm not the one putting my life on the line out there. And my mom reminded me of that when we were having a conversation and I was getting real militant. I was just like, this is what we need to do. And this is how people should be doing it. And she's like, how can you tell people to put their lives on the line while you sit in Vietnam and you're not going to be one of them? And that hit hard, you know, like, I'm just like, hey, she's right. (laughs) So how can I demand that they keep endangering themselves fighting for justice? I, I want them to, but at the same time, I want them to be safe. And there's like, apparently there's never going to be an America where both are possible because we're not getting the justice we need and we're not even getting them to pay attention to the fact that we need justice unless things get violent. So, I mean, I think you're that, that conflicting emotion, right? It's, you want people out there fighting, but then you recognize, but I can't physically be out there fighting. And and I, I think maybe the challenge for, for a Black American expat is what are the ways that I, if I want to support, I can still support even if I can't physically be there. But I think the other challenge, and, and it's just as valid, is 
you know, really wrestling with that guilt. And, yeah. and should you, should you feel guilty for making a decision that was best either for you as an individual or best for your family? Right. And yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know the answer. You know, all I know is that I do feel guilty. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't take any joy in it. And I wish that there was a world in which I could make all of them as safe as I feel, but there just doesn't seem to be any real solution. So I'm looking forward to hopefully finding a brighter future waiting for us. But with every day that passes by and every new tragedy, I, I get less and less hopeful about that, to be honest. And so I, I'm, I'm curious, since you are a comedian, um, does politics kind of filter into your set? It does obliquely, like the joke I mentioned earlier with guns and everything. Um, I tend to mention political things without stating, you know, any politician's name or anything like that. Mm. And it's not because I have anything against it. It's just because that's just not the kind of comedy that I'm good at writing. Mm. Um, I've seen comedians who can do fantastic political stuff, but I think for me, there's too much anger in it for it to be funny. (laughs) I can't really remove my, my personal feelings from it enough to like, you know, to sit there and tell some funny Trump jokes, like even, even mentioning his name makes my blood boil. So how am I supposed to make other people laugh when all I want to do is like, you know, rip things to shreds. Right. Um, So it, it has to do with, with your approach as a comedian. Like I think they, they always say that, you know, comedy equals tragedy plus time. So for me, there, there hasn't been enough time yet for sure. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it, right? There definitely hasn't been enough time. So you've been in Vietnam for two years yeah. and I, and I asked this question really at the top about Poland. How has, how has the experience of living in Vietnam been for you once again, as a, as an American and as a black person and as a black woman and living in Vietnam, how have you found your own community? Well, (laughs) living here, um, definitely has had its challenges in terms of, um, how I interact with locals, but I've noticed that the challenges I've experienced only seem to exist in the particular city that I live in. Like people here will point and they'll stare and they'll mutter, you know, in Vietnamese or they'll grab their friend's shoulder and encourage the friend to come look at me like I'm a circus attraction. Um, But I think part of that has to do with my weight and not necessarily my race uh, because they're just not used to seeing really large people in Vietnam. Um, So I don't, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I don't have that that same experience when I'm in large cities. Like the city I live in is kind of what you would call a hick town. (laughs) The people here are kind of like the Vietnamese equivalent of rednecks. But um, when I go to Ho Chi Minh City or Hanoi, the locals don't give a crap. You know, like they've seen it all. They've seen people from all over the world Mm -hmm. and they understand that there are different people (laughs) in the world. So it's not such a novelty to them. Um, So I would say that it's been pretty much fine in that regard. Although living in this particular city, it does get frustrating sometimes to constantly be the object of everyone's attention because 
you know, I would like the freedom to just move anonymously through a crowd uh, without having everyone pay attention to me. Um, but, you know, when you move to a, a country like this and you know you're going to be the odd one out, you just have to kind of get used to that kind of thing. Um, but as far as finding a community, I unfortunately can't necessarily say that I have, I have bonded with a lot of my fellow comedians, but when I made the decision to be the first comedian in this area, it, it may, you know, it, it guaranteed that I wouldn't have a comedy community here because I'm the only one. Right. Um, so it's kind of, you know, this self-imposed isolation. Like I have no one to blame, but myself for this. <laughs> Um, and as far as finding a community or among other expats, not really possible, unfortunately. Most of the expats in this area are middle-aged white men hooked up with Vietnamese women. Um, and there is a certain mindset and mentality that goes along with that, that is just not the type of uh, person I want to hang out with. And frankly, they don't want to hang out with me either. So it's a two-way street. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're not the type of person that the other is interested in. And um, it's it's a very small expat community because it's a very small city. So there just hasn't been a great opportunity. I have made friends, but unfortunately, they were, they're all gone now. Um, you know, Corona took away a lot of people uh, who wanted to get out before the borders closed. And a lot of people were just doing temporary jobs with nonprofits and so on. Um, so they just finished their contracts and, and went back to their countries or went on to their next assignment and we still keep in touch, but you know, that kind of left me in the lurch. So I have a little group of people I get together with to play board games, but that's pretty much it. Hey, don't knock the board games though. Hey, I would never knock board games. I <laughs> board games. love board games. You mentioned something that I've, I've actually talked with, with other with other female expats and uh, <laughs> I love the fact of what you said with the middle-aged white men and the Vietnamese women. Um, mm-hmm. I remember I was talking to someone who is in another part of the world and we got into, not and not that you're implying this or maybe you are, but we got into this whole conversation about sex tourism yeah. and, and, the, and the challenges that she was seeing from a dating side, from the dating side just because of why in that case American men were going to that country and so I'm just curious even you being in Southeast Asia um, with some of the history there is that sort of the same similar that you see sort of at play or a dynamic that's at play in Vietnam oh 100 percent 100 percent and nine out of ten of these guys are only here because they don't have what it takes to be in a relationship with a western woman like they don't want a woman who's going to argue with them or challenge them or point out that they're not that awesome or, <laughs> or speak English. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I've, I, I had a friend tell me about one couple she ran into where he didn't speak any Vietnamese at all. She didn't speak any English hardly at all. And they had a baby together. I mean, I guess obviously what they were doing didn't involve talking. So <laughs> If that's the kind of relationship that you want, I mean, I don't even know how you could call that a relationship, but <laughs> that's, that's what they're looking for. They don't want anything challenging. They just want someone who's going to think that they're some kind of savior and that their white dick is huge and uh, serve them food, I guess. I don't know. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, it was a similar, similar conversation we were having. And she's like, yeah, guy, guy doesn't speak Spanish. He, and she doesn't speak English. <laughs> And here they are in this relationship. And yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's what they wanted. So that's what they got. <laughs> and 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 I I I always ask this question then, particularly for 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 women who are particularly Western expats, how does that create a challenge then if you are looking to be in a relationship with someone? And of course, here I'm I'm assuming heterosexuality, but um how does that just create challenges, I guess, as far as the dating scene's concerned, or is it just you're looking elsewhere to date? I mean, um, I don't really date at all anymore. Like I have enough bad dating stories to get good comedy out of, which, (laughs) which was really (laughs) a good thing for, for me, you know, that's kind of all I needed, but yeah, I don't know. I've kind of given up on the whole dating thing, but definitely back when I was interested in dating, <laughs> it was a challenge. And um, I don't even know, really know what to say about it, except that if you are looking to get married and settle down, then don't move to Southeast Asia, women. Like, <laughs> stay in the U.S., ladies. Like, it's not a place to find a man. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. So I I have a, a couple of questions, but these are these are a little bit more fun questions. Not that the questions I've been asking before haven't been. So I'm basically calling it been calling it the lightning round, and you know three questions off the top of your head responses. Feel free to explain, or I may just go. I need to explain more. Um, don't think too hard about them. <laughs> so all right, all right, cool. Uh, First question. Favorite comedian? Chris Rock. Mm, why? Oh, because he's just everything I want to be. He's able to do exactly what I claim I do. Take personal <laughs> stuff and make it political. <laughs> he does the perfect political commentary. I mean, he's just he's a genius. I saw him live in London once. It was such a cool experience. Mm. Second question. What's the most unlikely place or uh, weirdest place you've ever performed? Um, I once had to perform at a bar in Poland that had forgotten they booked us on the night of a huge football match. So Mm. literally no one was listening to us at all. (laughs) Because if you've ever been in Europe and actually many parts of the world, if there's a football match going on, aka soccer. Yeah, it's huge there. So imagine like, you know, you're, you're trying to perform comedy during a playoffs game at a sports bar. That's basically <laughs> what it was. So yeah, that, that show didn't go over too well. The bar was really sorry, but <laughs> the was- damage was done. And the sad part was that it was... Um, it was an out-of-town uh, performance. I had literally, like, oh. left my city and taken a train to go perform at this place. Oh. And they had fucked up the timing, so. So did you, you still performed? Yeah, I mean, the show must go on, as they say. So we did our, we did our best, but we cut our sets short and just kind of talked to ourselves. Oh. <laughs> There was definitely nobody else listening. And frankly, we could barely hear each other over the sound of the TV. <laughs> so, to, so then to be fair, it was actually nice that it was a little bit shorter because 
probably could have gone that long anyway, not hearing yourself. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind. If I had more time to think of it, I might be able to think of weirder experiences. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that was a tough one. Um, last question. If you weren't doing comedy, what would you be doing? I guess I would just be doing my side hustle full time, which is basically what I've been doing since Corona started because we haven't been able to perform comedy at all. Um, so yeah, I teach online to, to pay those bills. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's all I would be doing, I guess. Well, I don't know. I would, I would like to think that, um, if I hadn't gotten into comedy, maybe I would have uh, stuck with international school or something like that. Yeah. But I think the fact that I was starting to find more and more of my, um, outlets and like how, I'm sorry, I'm phrasing this badly. What I'm trying to say is that, as I got more and more into comedy, it became more and more of an outlet for me to express my frustrations with my job. And the more I express my frustrations, the more frustrations there seemed to be. (laughs) I don't know if I would have burned out of teaching as quickly as I did Mm. if I hadn't had uh, comedy as a backup. Mm. And for those who also don't know, you also do some writing as well. You're like a, you're like a full scale creative here because <laughs> you do some writing I think you do some singing the triple threat <laughs> you might do some painting and some dancing and no, <laughs> no but I'm a terrible dancer and I can't even like draw a stick figure <laughs> but uh yeah I, I I think it makes sense that that creative outlet right kinds of keep for those of us who are always going through things and 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 going through op- I guess professional opportunities where it just takes a lot out of us. I think it's something powerful to have an outlet and, and for you to have an outlet that obviously brings you so much joy, but more importantly also brings the people who are around you joy. So I think that's pretty cool. Thank you. I hope it does bring someone joy. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I try to write whenever I can. And um, aside from the jokes, um, I've written a couple of books that, I don't know, they probably suck because no one's ever published them, but maybe one day. Yeah. I mean, you know what? The, the Corona hustle, all kinds of things are coming out of this season. Although <laughs> I, you're, you're far less in quarantine mode than we are in the U S we're still, we're still working are it out. From what I see on TV, it doesn't look like y'all are in quarantine mode at all. I mean, it really depends in what state you're in, right? Like, like I'm, we just moved to like phase 2.5 yesterday. So we're, we're, we're kind of sort of doing it, but then, you know, it, it depends who your governor is, but you're right. Uh, yeah. Good God. It's crazy here, but thank you so much, Keila Rose, for sharing your story. I, I loved hearing you know, your, your thoughts and, and, and your life, your international life, and, and more importantly, the comedy that you're doing. And I, I think that we're all going to be looking out for you in the various spots that we can on the internet. But oh, um, thank you. Hopefully uh, I will actually have some new content to deliver once Corona's over. I can get back on the road. Yeah. And we'll, we'll make sure that we share your links and your contact information in the show notes. But thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. The Global Chatter 
from The Black Expat is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is executive produced by Justin Williams. You can find all episodes of The Global Chatter on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.